hey guys and welcome to the next episode of the shane walsh podcast so uh thank you so much for everyone who has listened to the last few episodes and uh, there's a lot of change going on at the minute which is exciting um, and it's a new chapter for shane walsh fitness so the episode today is a solo episode and it is something that has come in an awful lot on my dms i got a shout out recently enough on instagram and in relation to kind of information regarding menopause and perimenopause and i know i've done episodes on this before and i know i've had the amazing Catherine o'keefe on i know i've had lara bryden on to talk about kind of perimenopause and menopause and kind of one of the things and there's common confusion around what it is what the difference between menopause and perimenopause is can we can people lose weight when they're going through this what it actually is and all that kind of stuff so it is important to to know and be aware of what it actually is and to know and be aware of the options and to know and be aware of what it actually is and the confusion around it so this is going to be there's a lot of information to it there's a lot of information behind it there's a lot of information with it so if you're a coach or a PT, pen and paper. If you're someone who's going through it themselves, pen and paper would be my advice. And if you have any questions afterwards, please do message me. I would always recommend to go and talk to your doctor to make sure that you're getting the proper treatment, the proper, maybe going down HRT route, maybe going down various different options and stuff like that. So I'm making sure you know what stage you're at. The biggest thing I would always recommend for anyone who is going through this stage of perimenopause or menopause, which I'll tell you the difference in a sec, is that you make sure that you are getting a hormone screen so it's like getting bloods done but you just ask for a hormone screen same process and they will take those markers and they'll be able to tell you where you're at and what levels you're meant to be at and what you're meant to be doing at that stage so when we talk about perimenopause and menopause lara bryden who has two amazing books on the cycle before 40 and after 40 and i would highly recommend anyone to read those sums up the next chapter of a woman's life really really amazingly and brilliantly when she called it the second puberty so puberty as we all know is a time when your body changes we you feel a little off mentally and sometimes can feel more insecure and they can be heightened and this is very similar to what perimenopause and menopause bring so if you look back when you were a teenager or when you were kind of like you felt you were a little bit more aware of things you're a little bit more self-conscious that's essentially what can be happening during perimenopause and menopause so although the life stage of menopause is well known there are actually different stages within menopause that are important to recognize and understand because menopause officially occurs when you stop menstruating for 12 months and perimenopause on the other hand means around menopause it's also known as the menopause transitional phase and it's called such because it happens before menopause although they're part of the same overall life transition menopause and perimenopause have different symptoms and treatment options so now we need to look into like actually what the difference in symptoms are so we'll start off with perimenopause so what are some of the common signs of perimenopause you're in your 40s you wake up in a sweat at night and your periods are erratic and often accompanied by heavy bleeding chances are you're going through perimenopause but i would always recommend if you have any irregularities heavy bleeding life flow irregular cycles go to the doctor doesn't matter what age of life or stage of life you are at please go to the doctor many women experience an array of symptoms as their hormones shift during the months or years leading up to menopause that is the natural end of menstruation 
So menopause is a point in time, but perimenopause, meaning Greek, which is peri, Greek for around or near plus menopause, is an extended transitional state. So what is perimenopause itself? So it has various, it has been defined variously um, and variously defined, but experts generally agree that it begins with irregular menstrual cycles. And this is courtesy of declining ovarian function, which is if you think of when you are having your cycle, or one of your clients or someone like that is having a cycle, the peak of it is in the middle where you have that ovulation phase where that's where uh, pregnancy can occur. And this ends after a year, uh, after the last menstruation, so 12 months, like I spoke about previously. Um, perimenopause varies greatly from woman, each woman to the next. Each woman won't have the same symptoms. Each woman is completely unique. And that's the same thing with their own cycle itself. So it's important that you get to know yourself, track your cycle. And if you've tracked your cycle, you know what, this isn't right or this is irregular. So let me go and get this checked. And this will allow you to, that is why it's essential for you to get in tune with your body and your cycles from really early on. This will allow you to spot any irregularities that may occur. And the average duration is three to four years, although it can last just a few months or extend to as long as a decade. Some women feel buffeted by hot flashes or wiped out by heavy pits. Many have no bothersome symptoms at all. I've seen clients who have really struggled and I've got clients who haven't had any struggles with perimenopause or menopause. And periods may end more or less abruptly for some, while others may menstruate irregularly or erratically for years. And fortunately, as knowledge about reproductive aging has grown, so have the options for treating some of it. It's more more features and it's kind of like there are more options to those who are coming through it that there weren't potentially there like there's a lot of a lot of new research coming out I know Davina McCall was doing a documentary on Channel 4 and um, I didn't catch it but I saw some of the kind of like the headlines and highlights coming out of it there's a lot of women who are going through this stage are actually it's having an impact on their workforce it's having an impact on when they can go to work it's having an impact on how they function and it is a serious thing and I don't think it's it's looked at enough by workforce i don't think it's looked at enough by people because i don't think as a generation or as individuals we kind of fob it off or we don't think it's 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 kind of like a proper thing or whatever it may be i could be very wrong but from doing lots of research on it from working with lots of clients on it it can be very misunderstood and a lot of people don't have the education or haven't been given the education or the direction to go what way they want to go down so with perimenopause and estrogen so during your peak reproductive years the amount of estrogen in circulation rises and falls fairly predictably throughout the menstruation cycle so if you think of estrogen you've got two main hormones in your body as a woman you've got estrogen you've got others as well you've got estrogen which is like your beyonce hormone which makes you feel like a lady and then you've got your progesterone which is your kind of your calming hormone or your chill out hormone which kind of um peaks towards the end of your cycle so if you think of your like your normal cycle for the first two weeks post bleed <clears throat> your estrogen will rise up and peak at ovulation so that's where you feel a little bit you can have you can feel a little bit more um horny you can feel a little bit more honest you can feel a little bit more potentially a little bit, a bit more aggressive and then that calms down and should calm down kind of post ovulation and rises down or sinks down and then after that your progesterone rises up and then that's meant to kind of like calm you out chill you down a little bit 
and there are amazing functions behind progesterone as well so if you think of it like a curve it rises up for the first two weeks and sinks back down which is your estrogen and then after week two which is around ovulation in the middle of your cycle so if you've got a 28 day cycle after day 14 your progesterone should take over and generally i'll talk about the different phases if there's something off for your cycle or you find you're a little bit more irritable at certain stages it may mean that they are a little bit a little out of whack and something to look into to make sure that you're getting your hormones checked your your cycle checked your different levels checked to make sure everything's okay so estrogen levels are largely controlled by two hormones your fsh which is your follicle stimulating hormone and your luteinizing hormone lh so fsh stimulates the follicles which is the fluid filled sacs in the ovaries that contain the eggs to produce estrogen so when estrogen actually reaches a certain level the brain signals the pituitary to turn off the fsh and produce a large surge of lh so fsh is your follicle stimulating hormone and your lh is your luteinizing hormone okay so there are my abbreviations for you this in turn stimulates the ovary to release the egg from its follicle which in turn will lead to ovulation so what happens then is the leftover follicle stimulates progesterone in addition to estrogen in preparation for pregnancy as these hormone levels rise the levels of fsh and lh drop if pregnancy doesn't occur progesterone falls menstruation takes place and the cycle begins again okay so we talked that estrogen rises up towards ovulation if pregnancy doesn't occur progesterone falls like it should menstruation takes place and the cycle begins again that's essentially what's happening so as perimenopause is kicking in estrogen does not decrease in a gradual gradual decline it's more erratic than that so think of it like a heart rate monitor it's up and down up and down I like compared to like sometimes the stock market the estrogen could be high at some points and lower at others so it is essential that we are aware the sequence of events of perimenopause so the sequence of events is number one is lower estrogen happens then number two is high and fluctuating estrogen number three is lower estrogen again or lower progesterone and then there's number four is potential insulin resistance but more research is needed on that so on average the entire natural perimenopause transition can take about seven years for some individuals if we look at some of the research from various different papers and stuff that i've read according to the cleveland clinic hormonal changes are seen eight to ten years ahead of menopause so this can happen during your 30s or your 40s even before the onset of perimenopause and some women may even get surgical induced perimenopause as well or menopause so that can be another factor so during the final stages of perimenopause your body will produce less and less estrogen despite the sharp despite the sharp drop of estrogen it's still possible to get pregnant perimenopause can last for as little as a few months and as long as four years so it's important to be aware that there is such thing as early onset menopause and if you reach menopause before the age of 45 or undergo menopause that is surgically or medically induced you will not experience many of these symptoms but you will be moved directly to a lower estrogen state okay so generally the average age for menopause is about 51 so if you're having any of these kind of symptoms before the age of 45 you will be moved directly to a lower estrogen state so if you have had procedure called a hysterectomy which is your removal of the uterus but retain your ovaries you will experience many of these symptoms so 
menopause officially kicks in when the ovaries produce so little estrogen that eggs are no longer released. So you won't be able to get pregnant. This also causes your period to stop. Okay, so your doctor will diagnose menopause once you haven't had a full period for 12 months. That's what it means. So you may enter menopause, you may enter menopause that earlier uh, than normal if you have a history of early menopause, maybe a smoker, have had a hysterectomy, have undergone cancer treatments, um, and there could be a few more things there as well. So a couple of the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. When it comes to actual menopause itself, most people think about the symptoms more than anything else. These can include the, the infamous hot flashes, but there are many other things that you may, might experience during this transi transition itself. So they may include irregular periods, periods that are heavier or lighter than normal. You could have worsened PMS, which is your kind of like generally your week before your cycle that normally kicks in. Breast tenderness, you could have weight gain, you could have hair changes, so you could lose your hair. Um, I'm not saying you go completely bald, but you can have lose some of your hair. You could have heart palpitations, could have loss of sex drive, headaches, concentration difficulties, forgetfulness, muscle aches, UTIs, fertility issues in women who are trying to conceive as well. So with the menopause symptoms, as your kind of like your estrogen levels drop, you might start experiencing symptoms of menopause. Some of these can occur while or occur while you're still at the menopause stage perimenopause stage and some of these can include your night sweats your hot flashes your depression irritability anxiety mood swings insomnia fatigue dry skin vaginal dryness frequent urination and cholesterol issues as well so even in some studies perimenopause and menopause can also increase cholesterol levels this is one reason why women in postmenopause are at even higher risk for heart disease so please make sure you're going to the doctor to make sure that you're getting kind of like an NCT uh, or an MOT on your body and getting your hormones and your bloods checked every so often because it's your body. You only have one body. So if there's something up and you're there and you're not feeling yourself, there's no point in being a martyr about it. Like go to the doctor if something's up. Um, I know it can there can be a financial implication to it, um, but there are companies like Let's Get Checked available in Ireland that will send you out the kit and you can prick your finger yourself if you don't like needles and it's prick the finger not with a needle and that can help but your gp at least you have a conversation there and you have that human interaction that a lot of us have missed during the lockdowns and that could help you as well so some of the treatments for the actual symptoms behind kind of perimenopause so the first one we'll start off with is the hot flashes they're one of the most common symptoms of, of menopause so up to about 75 percent of women experience them it is a brief sensation of heat and hot flashes aren't the same for everyone and there's no definitive reason that they happen. Aside from the heat, hot flashes can also come with a red flush face, sweating, a chilled feeling after the heat. Hot flashes not only feel different for each woman, but they also can last for various amounts of time. So they may be brief, they may be longer and you, you may waver between the two and you may not have them at all. But some women only have hot flashes for a short period of time during menopause. Others can have some kind of hot flash for the rest of their life. But typically hot flashes are less severe as time goes on. So if you are suffering with hot flashes, there are steps that you can take to manage certain menopausal symptoms. Turn down your thermostat in your house. Wear layers of light clothes and or lighter layers of clothes, should I say. And then have a fan handy 
to kind of like uh, mitigate these hot flashes and night sweats. And there's a few other uh, things that we can do to kind of relieve the symptoms. Pay attention to your diet. Have smaller regular meals and try to reduce the the, the avoiding larger meals. Quit smoking. Uh, only drink alcohol in moderation. So this is one of the big things and a hot topic when it kind of comes to this. And limiting caffeine to small quantities uh, and only have it in the morning. So that can sound like counterproductive because when if we're not sleeping or if women are not sleeping around the menopause or perimenopause the thing that we're going to that thing that people are going to go for is caffeine and if we're going for caffeine what that's going to do is when we get tired we drink caffeine and it takes about 60 minutes for caffeine to impact onto the body um, and it stays in our body for 12 hours or sorry yeah for 12 hours so if you have a coffee at kind of like 6 p.m it's in your body at 6 a.m so if we are tired all the time and we're having more caffeine we're going to be more tired so why do i say that so i would highly recommend to listen to the tom coleman episode on sleep tom is the main man in ireland for the sleep side of things and incredibly knowledgeable highly recommend listening to that episode and highly recommend getting in touch with him if you're looking for a guidance on your sleep but essentially what caffeine and sleep does and tiredness does so if you wake up tired or whatever, maybe you haven't slept, you've been on your phone all night, you've had the half lashes, whatever it may be, and you're waking up and the first thing you're going to do is for caffeine. So, and then after that kind of like little bit of energy kicks in after an hour, you're tired again, so you go for more caffeine. So each time you get tired, all that caffeine is nullifying that tiredness and you're going to need more caffeine. And then you're going to have this dip of energy and then you're going to need more caffeine to get you through that little uh, drop in energy. And then you're going to have another dip and you need more caffeine again. So every time you have that dip, you're going to need more caffeine. So potentially if you had one cup, you may need one, like you or say X amount of grams. You may need to have X plus Y amount of grams in order to get through that tiredness phase. So if you're having hot flashes, there's a reason for it. And what normally triggers a hot flash for some can be caffeine, can be smoking can be spicy foods can be alcohol tight clothing stress and anxiety that can happen because an awful lot as i spoke about with teenage years the stress and anxiety can be heightened and there are options for that and um, we like the likes of hrt and stuff like that which we'll speak about in a while heat including hot weather can also attract or can trigger a hot flash and be careful working out if you're if you are doing it in hot weather um so if you're experiencing any of the symptoms below that is essential that you actually go and talk to your doctor. And other symptoms that may include spotting after your period, blood clots during your period, bleeding after sex, and periods that are much longer or much shorter than normal. Some possible kind of explanations are hormonal imbalances or fibroids, both of which are treatable. However, you will need to also kind of like make sure you're getting ruling out the possibility of cancer as well. You should always also talk to your doctor if the symptoms of when you have potentially have these symptoms of perimenopause or menopause and before they become too severe to deal with on your daily life um so what are some of the treatments for perimenopause and menopause there are both prescription and over-the-counter treatments available for perimenopause and menopause so before i go into this i'm not a doctor you will talk to your specialist you will talk to your doctor if you're not happy with your doctor's answer go for a second opinion if your doctor isn't a specialist in this area go to a specialist so i'll give you the information 
but you may need to go and talk to your doctor on this in order to get a proper proper diagnosis but the main thing they'll have to do is take that that hormone screen so you've got estrogen hormone therapy and this works by normalizing estrogen levels so sudden hormonal spikes and drops don't don't cause uncomfortable symptoms and some forms of estrogen may even help reduce the risk of osteoporosis so osteoporosis is brittle bone syndrome so as women get older the the strength of their bones may weaken and estrogen is like that glue the calcium is like that glue so if you maybe if you have osteoporosis or osteopenia and i've seen it happen um with people in my family and i had the amazing natalie lennon on to speak about it and her journey so far and it's not comfortable and so if you are having those there are options taking calcium and vitamin d which your your doctor will be able to talk to you about and you may be happy and have an option of getting more eating into your body so if you if your eating is dropping it could be having an impact on your bone health and if your bone health is kind of like decreasing if you had a fall it's going to take you longer to recover from it and you could just feel a little bit more sore from things in general so eating is available over the counter and uh, but, but it's mainly by prescription um, it's going to be different rules in different countries but you will probably have to go to the doctor in order to get that and it's usually just combined with progestin so it's not your progesterone it's your progestin so it's your art it's the artificial man-made version of progesterone which is your progestin so if you listen to the pill episodes of the podcast when you are on the pill it isn't your natural estrogen or your natural progesterone that's in the pill so for example the combined pill it's your actual it's estradiol and progestin so it's the artificial man-made synthetic versions of those two hormones that are in those so some of the many forms that can come in are oral pills creams gels skin patches so but talk to your doctor about those options and see if they can help you other and also if you some people some women may have a sensitivity to estrogen so they may not be able to get that kind of treatment so it's an order and if you've had cancer before as well the hrt thing may not be an option but there are other viable options for that so please talk to your doctor about all the various options for you to make sure there is something for you um and more often than not there is something there will be rare cases where it may not be have the remedy for you so other menopause medications are more targeted for example a prescription vaginal cream this can help to alleviate dryness as well as pain from intercourse antidepressants can help with mood swings that's a personal choice if you take those or not and then you've got seizure medication uh your neurontin can be an an option for hot flashes but you'll need to talk to your doctor about those various different things so some of the home remedies for perimenopause and menopause there are also methods these methods can you you can be done at home Uh, but i would also i would always recommend as always talk to your doctor to get the right prescription to get the right um remedy for that side of things so please please make sure that you are doing that so the importance of regular exercise cannot be downplayed um so exercise can actually improve your mood weight gain issues and even ironically your hot flashes as well so i would encourage you to include some form of physical activity in your daily routine and every woman will experience the set of symptoms in a very very different way in a different different manner for some the symptoms are mild and pass quickly for others it's an explosion of hot flashes and mood swings 
the good news is you can adopt your lifestyle change to help cope with the actual changes that are occurring that, that are actually occurring in your body so regular exercise is also an excellent way to kind of reduce that chance of weight gain and loss of muscle mass which are two frequent symptoms of menopause but it's not for the reason why i think people believe so generally when it comes to weight gain and menopause and perimenopause people believe it's there they people believe it's due to the metabolism slowing down well i'm gonna tell you it's it's not that so if we look at what your metabolism actually is it's the process by which your body converts what you eat and drink into actual energy so the current belief of what many people believe is that your metabolism peaks as a teenager and then when people can eat anything what they want without gaining or slowing down in the in the kind of metabolic system and then that kind of happens in around 30s or 40s is what people believe at the minute but now the research is finding that these things ideas are kind of way off so the new research is showing and the more research is going to have to be done on this and the research was done by duke university have found that the information that i've said previously uh regarding the metabolism slowing down process starts actually a lot later so in this study the international team of scientists analyzed the average calories burned by more than 6600 people ranging from one week old to 95 years old as they went about their daily lives in 29 worldwide countries so what the research actually showed was as a baby we we burn more calories and we burn the most calories at that stage so a child actually burns 50 percent fast 50 percent calories faster for their body size than an adult then as we get into our teenage years the needs are not as high as we once thought so after surging in infancy the data shows that our metabolism slows by roughly about three percent each year until we hit our 20s then it levels off into a new standard this is when we kind of think that as middle when we hit middle age when you just look at food and you gain weight but that's not a thing so that's bullshit um but research has discovered that energy expenditures from 20s to our 50s were the most stable um, and the data suggests that our metabolisms don't significantly decline until after age 60 six zero the slowdown is a little less than one percent a year but once you reach your 90s you'll need roughly 25 percent fewer calories every day than someone in middle life all right so sarcopenia can happen as well which is a loss of uh, muscle uh, due to age and this could be partly to blame uh, since muscle burns more calories than actual fat so if you're it's important to kind of look at if you're looking to get training in i would highly recommend to lift weights to improve your bone health make you feel like you want to get toned whatever the word is um tone means build muscle get you more confidence uh, your clothes will feel better but it's important to look at and say that the metabolism can't be the reason that the weight gain is happening so generally what the weight gain is happening is due to if we're not sleeping or if people are not sleeping as they get older due to bladder issues or menopause or perimenopause if your sleep is down or your mood then your mood may be down if your mood is down you may go for more processed foods in order to deal with those moods if you're not getting sleep your energy will be down so you won't have 
that drive to actually exercise. If you're not sleeping, you may be a little bit more stressed. Then food might come into it. If you're not sleeping, you may go for more convenient foods. So that may be higher calorie foods so that you'll put on weight quicker. So it's not your metabolism. It's the fact that the sleep is lowering that you feel that you may need more food. So when the brain kicks in, so when we get tired, so think of when you're hungover, you start to say to yourself, oh, I crave this takeaway, I crave this. That's not what's happening. What's happening is when we get tired or hungover, our brain kicks in and says, right, I'm tired. The body's the body goes into safety mode and says to itself, right, let's get the quickest source of energy into the body. So generally that looks like is more processed food, more fats, more carbohydrates. There's nothing wrong or sugary foods. There's nothing wrong with any of those foods. But the brain is kicking in and saying, let's get the quickest hit of energy into the body to get it out of that. What happens then? You get this big surge of energy and then a massive crash back down. That's generally what happens. That's why when we're hungover or we haven't slept, we we seek these kind of like quick hits and we say, I crave chocolate or I crave X, Y, Z. That's not what's happening. We can't say, our body doesn't work like that. It, it, it can't say I crave a pavlova. What's happening is when we get tired or we get a little bit stressed or whatever it may be, whatever our coping mechanism is, our brain kicks in and says, goes into safety mode, like, right, let's get the quickest source of energy. In. And if we're not able to deal with our emotions, food will generally be our comfort for many um, and for all. Um, so uh, it's important to look at that and potentially work with someone on that side of things in relation to if you are an emotional leader, which we're all emotional leaders, Christmas is a happy time. That's that's also emotional eating. Easter is a happy time. Um, birthdays are a happy time. So generally, the according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, they, they said kind of like women should aim for at least 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity or 75 minutes of vigorous activity a week, which isn't a whole lot. Um, so it can be done. So what's the best form of exercise? So as a PT, um, this is a question I get asked all a lot. What is the best form of exercise? It doesn't matter what age group people are at, what stage of life they're at. I always go, what's the best form of exercise? So back to previously, just in relation to waning, gaining weight, it's not that you look at food and you put on weight. That's not a fact. That's just a story that you've created. That's not a thing. That's not how foods work. It's the same rule applies for, doesn't matter what stage of life you're at, is it comes down to the amount of calories you are consuming versus the amount of calories that you are that your body needs. So if you're consistently consuming more calories than your body needs, you're going to put on weight. If you're consistently eating less calories than your body needs, you're going to lose weight. So there's a very, very different that's why that's calorie deficit, calorie surplus when your body you're and you're eating more. And if we're eating more, we're going to put on weight. So it could be due to your sleep, it could be due to mood, it could be due to anxiety, it could be due to a lot of different factors. But it's not your metabolism. It's not that you're craving certain foods. It's not that you look at certain foods. But what people, which we'll talk about in a sec, but generally what we'll find is that um, women will kind of say, well, why am I gaining weight around my midriff and your stomach? So generally what's happening is your estrogen levels are dropping. So as you, uh, when you are kind of a woman in your 20s, 30s and going into your 40s, you'll har- you carry a lot of your weight in kind of like your... Uh, kind of your quads and your hips but as you get older your estrogen levels are dropping your progesterone levels are wavering as well and your testosterone is going up so your body 
weight will shift from into your bum and into your stomach so it'll go to where mainly males hold their weight so if you look at a man they normally hold their weight around their stomach and their midriff so it's not that and that's what's happening it's not that you're gaining weight or maybe that you're gaining weight but it's going towards your stomach because of the change in the hormone fluctuations in your actual body and not a lot of people are aware of that so what's the best form of exercise so sometimes it can be cardio so aerobic activity um makes use of large muscle groups so walking can really help if you've got anything wrong with your knees or your joints or anything like that walking can help light jogging biking swimming can all be low taxing um start small start with 10 minutes of light activity and then slowly boosting that i normally go for if you like swimming go for it if you like biking it can be great for like your knees and your joints um, and then walking can be handy to just get a decent pair of shoes and that can be just going out for a walk to go walk with the dog or whatever it may be strength training like this is the number one thing that i would probably recommend it reduces the the risk of osteoporosis um because the risk of osteoporosis or osteopenia brittle bone syndrome skyrockets following menopause because your estrogen is needed to play needed to help to actually lay down bone health and strength training weight training is especially vital you're not going to get bulky if you thought if you think you're going to get bulky it takes a hell of a lot of effort in order to actually put on muscle so strength training will really really help hit training there's some research towards this but i would number one aim for strength training and potentially going for a walk they're the onset they're the, the basic ones that i aim for so some some research is showing that hit training which stands for high interval in a high intensity interval training which is kind of popularized by joe wicks and it's alternating short periods of really really hard anaerobic work think of 85 to 95 percent of your maximum heart rate it's followed by less intense recovery of around 70 percent but not all the way down and the maximum session is usually about 30 minutes and you should feel pretty exhausted but that actually isn't hit training we as non-athletes don't do hit training so hit training is mainly used for athletes to actually push themselves to the absolute limit and the absolute max capacity is a very very short time of work that's high intent that's interval training but it's not actually what hit is um so high intensity work can help or may help to increase blue blood glucose control which could boost your body's ability to downgrade downgrade information um, and improve brain cognition and memory now they just this does not the big thing that's going to happen is now this does not mean that you have to jump around the living room over and over again this just means that throwing in some higher intensity work could help to increase your fitness it's not that strength training or v hit training is better for you strength training will help to build muscle that will help to increase your bone health will help to increase your cardiovascular health and help to improve you all overall so i would go for that uh, yoga meditation can help um in relation to dealing with some of the, the, the kind of like the approaches to relief as to no two women are the same they they kind of like it can help um can help to alleviate hot flashes irritability and fatigue dancing could help as well and uh, can be a bit of fun can be something that you do with your friends or whatever it may be um if you're starting out on a fitness journey you need to be realistic 
you need to have a why as well like losing weight isn't enough of a why you need to actually what's going to get you out of bed on a rainy day to go for a walk or what's going to make you do that meal prep or whatever it may be have a why why do you want to get fit and healthy so i fit into my clothes why do you want to fit into your clothes because i want to because i want to get into a dress why do you want to get into that dress so that my husband would back to feeling like feeling like he can so we can get that romance back other option is well why do you want to lose weight because i want to be there for my kids why do you, or i want to improve my health markers why do you want to improve my health markers so i'm there for my kids why don't i be there for your kids so that i can spend as much time with them so i can see my grandkids there's your why that's the bit that's going to get you out of bed because if you're relying on motivation to start nothing's going to change um, and I'm not being bro, bro PT there. Generally, most people think that it's motivation. Then, act, or sorry, most people think it's like um, motivation. Then action will come. But it's in fact, it's the other way around. It's like right, take some action. Then motivation will come. Ever looked at when you actually started doing something, you're a lot more motivated to do something and stick with it rather than waiting for something to happen. Um, set. Make sure you're setting goals. Realistic, attainable, specific. Don't simply just declare, I'm going to exercise more. Tell yourself and set specific examples of, all right, I'm going to walk for 30 minutes. I'll lunch three days a week. I'll take a group cycling class. I'll play tennis with a friend once a week. Recruit a friend or a space or a workout buddy to help you keep you motivated. Get a coach to keep you accountable if you want. Exercise is like the most amazing thing for many things and a woman's risk for numerous medical conditions including breast cancer, type 2 diabetes and heart uh heart disease and these all the, all these things can help can can increase um during and after menopause so working out regularly can and having a healthy decent routine can help offset these risks so you can train at home cat home equipment kettlebells dumbbells whatever it may be go to the gym get a pt get a coach whatever it may be it will help you build muscle more confident all that kind of stuff start off slow so with your nutrition all right so this is where most people struggle with um it's the hardest part i would say it's about 90 percent the most important thing in relation to any journey um and then it's like your training and then your sleep and your stress management or stress and sleep management are like so so key so there is evidence out there uh, that can need more research on it that certain foods may help relieve some symptoms of menopause such as hot flashes poor sleep and low bone density so dairy products is one people are like well like i've heard x y and z is like yeah we've all heard x y and z about certain things but generally if it's too far to the left or too far too too extreme generally what can happen is it's normally bullshit um so the decline in estrogen levels during menopause can increase women's risk of fractures so dairy products such as milk yogurt and cheese contain calcium phosphorus potassium magnesium vitamins d and k all of which are essential for bone health in a study in nearly 750 postmenopausal women those who ate more dairy and animal protein had significantly higher bone density than those who ate less Dairy may also help improve sleep. A review study found that those high that those that those foods high in amino acid glycine, found in milk and cheese, for example, promote a deeper sleep in menopausal women. Furthermore, some evidence links dairy consumption to a decreased risk of premature menopause, which occurs before the age of forty-five. So, 
in one study, women with the highest intake of vitamin D and calcium, which cheese and fortified milk are rich in, had a 17.17% reduced risk of early menopause. Fats. So healthy fats such as omega-3 fatty acids uh, may benefit women going through menopause. Still, it may be worth testing if increasing your omega-3 intake improves your menopause-related symptoms. Um, foods highest in omega-3 fatty acids include fatty fish, mackerel, salmon, anchovies, things like flax seeds, chia seeds, and hemp seeds. If you're not getting those or you don't like fish, you have a fish allergy, whatever it may be, talk to your nutritionist and get different options. Uh, if you're not allergic to fish and stuff, supplementing with um, omega-3s um can help um i take them daily put them aside the kettle put them aside the tap and say they will prompt you to hate them put them aside your toothbrush whole grains so whole grains are high in nutrients including fiber and b vitamins such as uh, theamine nicene ariboflavin um pantothenic acid and a diet high in whole grains has been linked to a reduced risk of heart heart disease cancer and premature death in a review, researchers found that people who ate three or more servings of whole grains per day had a 20 to 30% lower risk of developing heart disease and diabetes compared to people who ate, who ate mostly refined carbs. So a study in over 11,000 postmenopausal women noted that eating 4.7 grams of whole grain fiber per 2,000 calories per day reduced the risk of early death by 17%, percent one seven compared to eating only 1.3 grams of whole grain fiber per 2000 calories so whole grain foods include brown rice whole wheat bread barley quinoa and rye so look for whole grain listed as the first ingredient on the label and evaluating packaged foods containing primarily whole grains this isn't to say that white carbs or bread or anything that aren't great whole grain has shown evidence that they will make you that can be more beneficial overall and P.S. Carbs will not make you fat. Let go of that stupid, stupid myth. Carbs will not make you fat. One gram of carbs equals four calories. One gram of protein equals four calories. One gram of fats equals nine calories. One gram of alcohol equals seven calories. How can, unless you are in a consistent calorie surplus, no carbohydrate or no food in isolation will make anyone gain weight. When it comes to fruit and veggies, they are packed with vitamins and minerals, fiber and antioxidants. For this reason, the American Dietary Guidelines recommend filling half your plate with fruits and veggies. Most people I see on a daily basis when they first start working with ourselves and me is that they're not getting enough fruit and veggies into their diet. They, like, I don't have time, well, go for tin veg, go for frozen veg, go for whatever veg you want. Like, frozen veg holds on to the nutrients more than fresh veg so why am i saying that and it's not about that it's, it's worse or better than the other but if you're think about it if it's going from frozen veg it's going from the ground into a freezer so it's hold on to the nutrients if it's fro fresh veg what will happen is it will go from the ground onto a shop floor and the air and stuff like that will take the nutrients away from it so it's not about one being better just get fiber and veggies in really really just get them in like seriously look at when you like how do you talk to your kids are you putting kids are you putting fruit on veggies onto your kids plate okay so if you are if they're good enough for your kids why they're not good enough for you so like cruciferous vegetables maybe 
especially helpful for postmenopausal women. In one study, eating broccoli decreased levels of a type of estrogen linked to breast cancer, while increasing levels of an estrogen type that protects against breast cancer. So that's that's one study. That doesn't mean it's an actual fact. That's one study, and more, more and more research is going to need to be done on that. So do not take that as gospel. Dark berries may also benefit women go through menopause. In one eight-week study, in 60 menopausal women, 25 grams a day of uh, freeze-dried strawberry powder uh, lowered blood pressure compared to a control group. More research is needed. That that sample of size is 60 people is too small in order to make a definitive on that. In another eight-week study in 91 middle-aged women, those who took 200 milligrams of grape seed extract supplements daily experienced fewer hot flashes, better sleep, and lower rates of depression compared to a control group. That's one study. It's 91 people. It's not a whole lot of people, so more research is needed on that. So then we've got phytoestrogen-containing foods. So phytoestrogens are compounds in foods that act as a weak as weak estrogens in your body. So while there has been some controversy on including these in the diet the most recent research suggests that they may benefit health especially for women going through menopause foods that naturally contain phytoestrogens include soybeans chickpeas peanuts flax seeds barley grapes berries plums green and black tea and many more in a review of 21 studies on soy postmenopausal women who took soy isoflavin um supplements for at least four weeks had 14 percent higher estradiol or estrogen 14 to 14 levels compared to those who took a placebo however the results were not significant in another review of 15 studies ranging from 3 to 12 months phytoestrogens including soy isoflavin uh, su- supplements and red clover were found to kind of have lower incidences of hot flashes compared to control cold groups but no with no serious side effects those two studies do not take as gospel they're giving you the information and it's up to you that i would probably, probably recommend i'll give you a synopsis at the end so quality protein so that because there's a decline in estrogen from menopause and perimenopause it's linked to decreased muscle mass and bone strength you need to make sure you're getting protein in you're not going to turn into arnold schwarzenegger you're not going to turn to rock by having protein but it will help you to hold on to what muscle what bone health you have it's not going to regenerate it's not going to get back what you've lost but it can reduce it and pause it from where it's at and improve it where it's going forward so aiming for regular portions of protein per day each meal ideally is a great place to start greek yogurt chicken eggs salmon fish like protein bars are handy way but they're a glorified chocolate bar there's nothing wrong with them but the quality of the protein in them isn't normally great then you've got the likes of meat then you've got the, like the vegan way as well if you want it but if vegan you may need to supplement bcaa if you're not getting it the, you're not getting the full bcaa's in them so in a large study in adults over 50 eating dairy protein was linked to an eight percent lower risk of hip fracture while eating plant protein was linked to 12 percent reduction i'm not saying one's better than the other but i'm saying there's still benefits in having some sort of protein in there so foods high in protein include the likes of eggs meat fish legumes and dairy products and you can get protein powders all that kind of stuff so incorporating dairy products healthy fats whole grains fruit veggies foods high in phytoestrogens and quality source of protein into your diet may help relieve some menopause symptoms so just be conscious of that 
it's not that you look at food and you put on weight that's not how it works it's what you aim for over a consistent amount of time on your calorie basis that will get you to your goal so if you're looking to lose weight aim for your calories work with someone to get your calories from you or for you or type into any um calorie calculator and it'll give you a range aim for a range so say if the calorie calculator gives you that you need to be in a deficit of 18 to 2000 calories see i didn't mention 1200 uh 18 to 2000 calories and you subtract about three to 500 calories so if you're in a deficit if you're going for 18 to 2000 calories and that's your deficit what i would probably recommend is aiming for that range rather than saying i'm only allowed to have 1800 calories it gives you that wiggle room it avoids perfection it avoids beating yourself up if you go over it or under it and aim for a weekly calorie target so if, if it's 18 to 2000 calories a day aiming for around 14,000 calories a week so multiply your total by seven days that'll give you a weekly target there'll be days you go over it there'll be days you go under it but it'll be the consistent effort over time so uh foods to watch out for there are some studies that say reduce carbs but there isn't enough research on it to warrant it to kind of like it's not my philosophy to do it um it's going to be coming down to total amount of um calories whole grain carbohydrates is where i would start with having some white starch carbs and spuds and stuff like that aim for it um alcohol and caffeine uh, studies have shown that caffeine and alcohol can trigger hot flashes in women going through menopause in one study in a 196 menopause women caffeine and alcohol intake decreased sorry increased the severity of hot flashes but not their frequency on the other hand another study associated caffeine intake with lower incidence of hot flashes so therefore it might be worth testing whether eliminating caffeine affects your hot flashes or another factor to consider is that caffeine and alcohol are known sleep uh, disruptors and that many women going through menopause have trouble sleeping so if this is the case as i said earlier with caffeine and all that kind of stuff you need to look at moderately looking at that like if you're drinking all the time and like alcohol breaks up your sleep like if you think of it like when you've had a few drinks you think you're in a deep sleep you're not because it's you're, you're you're just not in a deep sleep so you wake up more tired same with caffeine if you've loads of caffeine you're just going to go through those highs and lows of energy and fluctuations of energy so just be mindful of it. i'm not saying take them out or reduce them or take, take them out completely i'm just saying look at what you're doing right now if you go culture you're on caffeine you're going to get more headaches and you're going to get more annoyed and more frustrated so looking at spicy foods reducing or potentially avoiding spicy foods the common recommendation for women going through menopause the research is fairly limited so in one study in 896 women going through menopause in spain south america examines the association between lifestyle factors and incidences of hot flashes and associated spicy food intake with an increase of hot flashes another study of 717 to 717 perimenopausal women in india associated hot flashes with spicy food intake and anxiety levels researchers kind of concluded that hot flashes were worse for women with uh, with overall poorer health as your reaction and toleration and your threshold to spicy foods can be individual and maybe individual please use your best judgment when it comes to including spicy foods in your diet avoid them if you have ibs avoid them or reduce them if you have hot flashes from them so another kind of food to can to be mindful of is high salt foods 
So high salt intake has been linked to lower bone density in postmenopausal women. It isn't to say that not to have any salt. It's just saying that there was a study of about nine and a half thousand postmenopausal women whose sodium intake of more than about two grams per day was linked to a 28% higher risk of lower bone mineral density. There's more research to be done on it, so do not take that as gospel. I'm just giving you the research. I'm not telling you to go one way or the other. Additionally, after menopause, the decline in estrogen increases your risk of developing high blood pressure. Reducing your sodium intake uh, may also lower this risk and help you in that regard. Further, furthermore, in a randomized study of about 95 postmenopausal women, so it's a small study, uh, those who followed a, a moderate sodium diet experienced better overall mood compared to women who followed a generally healthy diet with no salt restriction. So reducing processed carbs, reducing alcohol, reducing caffeine, reducing spicy food, um, and kind of potentially reducing some of your sodium intake may improve your symptoms. It's linked to changes in your metabolism, uh, menopause, so and reduce bone health and reduce heart and increase risk of heart disease. Many women going through menopause experience unpleasant symptoms such as hot flashes and poor sleep you are not alone on this journey you are not alone going through this situation um there is help there is guidance out there and that's why i wanted to do this episode i have a feeling this episode is going to be the longest episode duration wise that i'll ever do and i have ever done it's going to be like a mini joe rogan podcast if i'm being 100 percent honest um apart from the facts that it's actually proper nutritional evidence but we won't go through that. Um, a whole foods diet in high in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, high quality protein, dairy products may reduce symptoms in menopause. Phytoestrogens and healthy fats such as omega-3 fatty acids from fish may also help. You may want to reduce added sugars, processed carbs, alcohol, caffeine and high sodium or spicy foods as well. They're all subtle changes. They're all the advice that we're given from a younger age that we can bring into our life as we go so it's nothing radical nothing about skinny teas or detoxes or waistband trainers or any of that kind of crap what it is it is looking after your sleep looking after your stress if those things are slightly off being mindful of caffeine being mindful of alcohol looking and talking to your doctor is there something up with your hormones potentially going to the doctor definitely going to the doctor and talking about that side of stuff with people so on the nutrition side of things it's the generic basic things and basic principles that we're always going to look for and no matter what age we are at and then we talk about supplements but supplements are just supplemented diet they shouldn't be the only thing you have if you aren't deficient in something there is no need to supplement with something that's a fact so if you're deficient in something in order to find that out go get your bloods done at the same time when you're getting your hormones checked and you'll be able to find out what's going on so there is growing interest in botanical and other nutritional supplements to treat menopausal symptoms and some of these kind of supplements can include magnesium so magnesium is an important mineral in the human body it influences mood regulation sleep supports healthy bones and hormone levels and is involved in hundreds of biochemical reactions throughout the body what's more as women reach older adulthood and experience menopause magnesium becomes partly particularly important for good health and may even help to reduce menopause symptoms. So most menopausal women have inadequate magnesium levels, putting them at greater risk of poor health. However, magnesium 
can be consumed through many foods or dark chocolate. The smiles coming now, I can feel it. Beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, leafy greens and whole grains. You can also easily find magnesium supplements over the counter or online. And they're safe to use, but you need you may need to consult with your healthcare provider first. Normally, I have a dosage of around 100 milligrams to 420 milligrams is a safe place to start. But some may need more, some may need less. Uh, it's kind of like, as Lara Bryden talks about it, it is nature's spark plug. So it's, a, it's really, really beneficial to use this. Then we look at omega-3 fatty acids, which we've spoken about already. So if you're not getting two to three oily pieces of fish into your diet, mackerel, salmon, all that kind of stuff, into your diet on a weekly basis, I would potentially supplement with omega-3 fatty acids. So a review study in about 483 menopausal women concluded that omega-3 supplements decrease the frequency of hot flashes and the severity of night sweats. However, in another review of eight studies, on omega-3 and menopausal symptoms, only a few studies supported the beneficial effect of the fatty acids on half lashes. The results are therefore inconclusive. So there's there's always, sometimes tests can be, or studies and results and stuff and that from studies can be too good to be true. So if something's too good to be true, it's generally too good to be true. So it may not be the actual truth. So it could be worth testing if increasing your omega-3 could be improving your menopause races. I see no issue with taking it unless you are have an allergy to fish. So foods highest in omega-3s, fatty fish, such as mackerel, salmon and anchovies and flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds. If you don't get enough of those into your diet on a regular basis, I would highly recommend a supplement. Then we've got vitamin D and calcium. So daily combined doses of about 1,000 to 1,200 grams of calcium and 400 to 800 IU of vitamin D have been found to reduce overall fracture by 6% and hip fracture by 16%. So the two of them linked are glue, they link together. So generally, if you're looking to buy calcium, you'll find that it's either linked with calcium and magnesium, or you'll find it's linked with uh, calcium, vitamin D. And so it's, it's they're normally come as a package. So I'd normally get probably all three, uh, the three if you are going to get something. Then we look at creatine. Creatine is one of those that is the most researched supplement in the world, but yet there's still so much BS about it. So creatine is a substance that's found naturally in your muscles. It has been shown to help with recovery from exercise, as well as improve strength, power, muscle mass, and anaerobic exercise capacity. In women specifically, creatine supplements have been linked to improvements in strength, exercise performance, muscle mass, both pre- and post-menopause. Furthermore, early research actually suggests that creatine or taking creatine may have benefits for women outside of the gym, including reducing mental fatigue and managing depression. Not saying it's treatment for depression, but there can be, and there are studies to say that it can be helped to work with it. It's not going to solve it. It's not going to treat it. It's not going to resolve it, but it may help to manage it. So aiming for around three to five grams per day is a place to start increase your water if you have ibs start on the lower dose of three grams no need to bulk dose it or whatever it may be which the old research used to say and remember to take it regularly if you're waist training you're and if you're not postmenopausal or your rms or it doesn't matter where you're at creatine is a great way to, to start I, if you're not training with weights you're not going to get as bang as your book it's not a secret tool or it's not a secret recipe or whatever it may be for success in relation to building muscle but what it can do is it can help um if you're if you're lifting weights i would highly recommend you to take it 
So then there's another thing called Vag- uh, Vitex, which is which is Agnes Castus or Chasbury. And Vitex is a popular herbal supplement used to treat a variety of health problems. For instance, can be used to treat PMS. So I know a lot of women that I work with on a daily basis are taking it. Symptoms of menopause, infertility issues, other conditions affecting a woman's reproductive system. If you have are on depression meds, please do not take Vitex. Okay, if you are on depression meds, please do not take Vitex. The hormonal balancing effects of Vitex may also help relieve some symptoms of menopause. In one study, Vitex oils were given to 23 women in menopause. So it's a small range, a small study. Women reported improved menopause symptoms, including better mood and sleep, and some even regained their period. More research is needed, so take that how how you take it. In a follow-up study of about 52 additional pre- and post-menopausal women were given a Vitex cream. So of the study participants, 33% experienced major improvements and another 36% reported moderate improvements in symptoms, including night sweats and hot flashes. So, however, not all studies observe these benefits. One recent study in a large double, uh, larger double-blind randomized control trial, the gold standard in research, what that is, have gave women a placebo uh, or a daily tablet containing a combination of Vitex and St. John's Wort. After about 16 weeks, the Vitex was no more effective than the placebo at reducing hot flashes, depression, or any other menopausal symptoms. So keep in mind that in many studies reporting benefits, women were provided with supplements that mix Vitex with other herbs. Therefore, it's difficult to isolate the, the, the kind of the links and the benefits and the effects of Vitex alone. The research is promising on this, but as more is needed to provide a definitive answer. So and it needs to be further backed up by science. Other supplements that research has looked into include creatine, uh, DHEA, evening primrose oil, so soy isoflavins, and St. John's wort. The effectiveness of all these supplements is is quite variable, to say the to say the least. For example, some women find relief from hot flashes by supplementing soy isoflavins, but some women experience no benefits. So this may be because certain gut bacteria metabolize metabolize soy into equal a compound that exerts estrogenic effects so women don't who don't benefit from supplementing soy uh, isoflavins may be equal non-producers and they can take an equal supplement instead to take this and see if it helps reduce the symptoms so talk to your doctor if you're thinking about doing it the research is there but it's not strong enough to warrant for everyone to take it or to take it so i'm giving you the information do with what you wish and also, please do not take all the supplements that I say all at once and go out and buy these all. Talk to your doctor, see what meds you're on, see if there are matches to this. We've got the likes of black co-wash as well. Um, so this is like a, a, a herb native to North America, I think, and it's traditionally been used for cognitive inflammatory conditions. Um, and, but it's been growing in popularity due to its ability to treat vasometer um, symptoms of uh, menopause primarily half flashes and night sweats so the there isn't like a like, there's a little bit of dose recommendations which i'm not going to give because they're not strong enough in evidence um it's not known whether or not black cloash needs to be taken with food although it is kind of recommended there's red clover as well um and tends to be 40 milligrams of total isoflavins taken once a day or two doses equally 80 um there's brand names such as Promisil. Um, so it's 
when looking at that research um, and linking it with menopausms, there are indeed benefits uh, in isolated studies relative to placebo, but there are also many failures uh, indicating that supplementation is pretty unreliable in benefiting symptoms. So this can be due to differences in absorption, kind of like the potential industry bias. Like if you then look at studies, most of them are paid for by larger companies and then they try to pinpoint which which one will benefit them the most. The perfect example of that is nothing to do with menopause is the Kellogg study. So they came, they paid for a study to be done that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Hence why we say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. When will it help some people? Yes. Will it help other people? No. Um, it depends on the individual. But they paid for that because it was going to impact on their bottom line. So just be careful where you're getting the information from. So I'm giving you the information. Do it the way you will. This is not medical advice. This is not medical advice. Talk to your doctor. Talk to your doctor. Get your hormones screened. Don't take all these supplements at once. I cannot say that enough. Um, so what I'd probably recommend is the likes of omegas. I would like to recommend the likes of vitamin D, calcium, magnesium. Um, and then if you're training creatine, they're probably the ones I would go for. But if you're on medications, just make sure that they're not going to like link in with those. So one of the big questions that kind of comes in, I've alluded to this already, but I'll go through it again because I could have talked about it ages ago, like 45 minutes ago, by the way, I'm kind of rambling on here. So why do some women gain weight around menopause? Weight gain and menopause is very common. There are factors at play, including aging, hormones, lifestyle, and genetics. However, the process of menopause is very, very highly individual and it varies from woman to woman. So before we can actually go any further, we need a quick recap on the female reproductive life cycle. There are four main periods of this. Uh, so episode 51, I would recommend anyone to listen to. Uh, the female fat loss myths, I would recommend anyone to listen to. And that will go through the stages of the cycle. I've been on loads of different episodes. Brian Keane's one is probably the standout one in my head. Or MJ uh, Nutrition Mary Jo's podcast where I talk about it an awful lot there as well. So the four main stages are pre-menopause, perimenopause, menopause, post-menopause. So they're pre-menopause, perimenopause menopause and postmenopause. So we start with premenopause. This is the term for women's reproductive health uh, or life when well she's fertile. So it begins at puberty, starting with the first menstrual period and ending with the last. This phase lasts for about 30 to 40 years. Then we've got perimenopause. Literally means around around menopause. So during this time estrogen levels become erratic and progesterone levels decline. A woman may start perimenopause anytime between her mid 30s and early 50s, but this transition typically occurs in her late 40s and lasts for between 4 to 11 years, women dependent. So then we've got menopause. So menopause officially occurs once a woman hasn't had a cycle for 12 months. And the average age in the UK uh, for menopause is about 51 years of age. Some get it before, some get it after, but the average age is about 51. Uh, until Up until then, she's considered perimenopausal. And then many women experience their worst symptoms during perimenopause. Not during menopause, but during perimenopause. Uh, but then others find that their symptoms intensify in the first year or two after menopause. So it can have different effects on different women. So it's important that you know and identify what's going on with your body and link in with someone to guide you and help you. Then we've got postmenopause. 
So postmenopause begins immediately after a woman has gone 12 months without a period. The terms menopause and postmenopause are often used interchangeably, but they're slightly different. And they're different stages of things. So, and there'll be different changes throughout the lifetime with relation to hormones, fertility, including body weight. So do hormone changes affect the metabolism? So during perimenopause, progesterone levels decline slowly and steadily, while estrogen levels fluctuate greatly from day to day and even within the same day. In the early part of perimenopause, the ovaries often extremely produce extremely high amounts of estrogen. And this is due to impaired feedback signals between the ovaries, hypothalamus, which is your uh, hormone regulator in your brain, and your pituitary gland. So later in perimenopause, when menstrual cycles become more regular, the ovaries produce very little estrogen. They produce even less during menopause. So some studies that suggest that high estrogen levels may promote fat gain. But that isn't that may not be the case. So don't latch on to that. So more research needs to be done on it. There's some links, there may not be other links, so don't latch on to that. So as I said already, from puberty to menopause, women tend to store fat in their hips and their thighs. And then as we get as women get older, then it goes into their bum and their hip and their stomach, more in line with what the, the, the man uh, holds and that's why because the testosterone is rising but it's not your metabolism that's slower there's a lot of hormonal changes sleep energy output lack of exercise drinking more caffeine lack of sleep night sweats can all lead to decreased energy decreased mood all that kind of stuff so it will be 100% linked to the amount of calories you consume be, be the calories that you uh, burn on a daily basis like so, like I've seen some studies, and I've seen it with some women, that it's at, like some women can have weight gain of about two to five pounds, or generally one to two kg, during the perimenopausal transition. Some gain more weight, some don't gain any weight, and this to be appears to be kind of true for women who are already overweight or have obesity already, and and struggle with that already. So. Weight gain may also occur as part of aging. And researchers looked at weight and hormone changes in women between the age of 42 and 50 over a three-year period. And there was no difference in average weight gain during those who continued to have normal cycles who have entered menopause. The study of women's health across the nation, or SWAN, is a large observational study that has followed middle-aged women through menopause. During the study, women gained belly fat and lost muscle mass. And this can be through increased appetite from lack of sleep or more stress or more emotions and more and the various different hormonal changes. And then in one study, the levels of the hormone, the hunger hormone, which is ghrelin, uh, were found to significantly higher during perimenopausal women compared to premenopausal and postmenopausalism with women. That's lack of sleep, stress, all that kind of stuff. So we've got two hunger hormones. We've got leptin, which is our fullness hormone. And we've got ghrelin, which is our hunger hormone. So I think of hunger hormone and G. So G is grow. So our hunger hormone grows. And leptin is our fullness hormone because it lessens our hunger. That's the quick way to remember it if you're a PT. So the low estrogen levels in the the late stages of menopause may also impair the function of leptin and neuropeptide Y, hormones that control fullness and appetite. Therefore, you may think you are 
more hungry or appetite may increase because of tiredness, stress, all that kind of stuff. And that may be the overall reason that weight gain may happen. So we already know that the activity levels may be down, stress, all that kind of stuff, but it's important to link back into what I said earlier about lifting some weights, getting some walks in, doing something. Um, important to have a eat a balanced diet, whole grain carbs where possible, add fiber, do some training, rest and relax, do some yoga, manage that sleep and stress. If you follow these steps more often than not and go to the doctor, get your hormone screened and potentially look at the option of getting HRT if that's a viable option for you, please do. All right. So we're managing sleep and stress, managing sleep and menopause. All right. So, so sleep is a massive factor. So if you think of sleep, like you charge your phone every night for it to work, you charge your laptop every day so you can do work. Sleep is the exact same thing. If you're not getting enough sleep, your body will tell you. Um, and what I said earlier about when we get tired, what will happen is your brain will kick in and try to get you to go for the quickest source of energy, which is often carbohydrates. Our body's primary source or our preferred source of energy is carbohydrates because it gives us the energy. So when we get tired, we'll eat more carbohydrates. Um, and that's generally where that link comes from. It's like when people think carbohydrates gain weight. It's no, it's generally your lifestyle that's causing you to or lack of stress or lack of management of stress and lack of sleep is generally what's causing you to potentially eat that little bit more. So there's a thing called homeostasis, which is balance in your body. And if your body feels that it's out of whack or out of sync, it will generally prefer to go for the more quicker fits of energy like carbohydrates, fats, um, sugary foods and salt and, and um, processed foods. There's nothing wrong with those foods but it means something's up with the body. So with hot flashes and night sweats, and unfortunately a lot of women will experience anxiety, um, they're bad enough on their own, but then they start to affect your sleep and they can feel even worse. It's a frustrating cycle for so many. The stress and tiredness caused by another restless night can sometimes just make the symptoms and your sleep problems worse. And many don't realize that if you don't get enough sleep, it affects your hunger hormones like the leptin and ghrelin, which I spoke about, it increases your hunger and increases the intensity for that full mass hormone. And that's where it looks for that quickest source of energy. So lifestyle changes can help to reduce the frequency for hot flashes. Reducing your caffeine intake, reducing your alcohol intake, getting some exercise in, managing your stress. If you're stressed to the hill to work, you need to look at, do you need to keep going at the pace you are? Are you attached to the identity of your job? You are not your job. You'll realize later on in life, and it's something I'm realizing now, that you are not your job. Yes, my name is in my job, but it doesn't mean I am my job. There is a blurred line, and it has been a blurred line, and the change is coming for that. So what can be causing the sleep problems during menopause? And as a quick recap, your ovaries stop producing the hormones of estrogen and progesterone. The decrease in these hormones can cause hot flashes and night sweats. As your body's temperature rises during sleep, you may wake up. By the time your hot flash has passed, you may have been awake for several uncomfortable minutes or hours or whatever it may be. And, and many women find it hard to get back to sleep afterwards. In addition to the hot flashes and sweating, you may, may experience uh, sleep problems as a result 
more likely for depression, anxiety, uh, mood disorders during perimenopause or menopause. If you're facing additional stress, the mental tone may also prevent you from sleeping. If your mind can't free you from itself and those anxieties during the day, you may find it hard to fall asleep. So if you're on your phone at night, just aimlessly watch on Netflix with the lights on, on your phone or your laptop before you go to bed. That's not going to help. Caffeine, cut it back to start off at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, bring it back to like 12 o'clock, ideally 10 o'clock, but not many of us will stick to that. Water will help you with your energy balance a lot more than caffeine. Keep you steadier and it'll improve your cognitive function. So sleep apnea, go to the doctor, restless leg syndrome, go to the doctor, and insomnia, go to the doctor, can also contribute to these factors as well. And if we're not getting sleep, our mood's going to drop down, more irritable, not nice to be around, low confidence, low self-esteem, all these things can happen as well. And so that's why sleep is imperative. So some of the tips that I would use and I use with clients, it doesn't matter what stage of life they're at, eat well and get plenty of exercise. It's important to eat regular, well-balanced meals that aren't high in in like high in sugar or fat and exercise day to prevent hot flashes. I haven't said to reduce fat. I haven't said to take out fat. I haven't said to take out sugar. I've said if you're highly processed foods, your sleep may impact it. If you're not exercising at all, your your mood won't be great either. Eating or exercising too close to bedtime can, for some, impact the, the nature's body clock and inhibit their sleep as well. But some women find they sleep better if they exercise in the evening. Some find if they do it in the morning or whatever time. It's about finding what works for you. Another thing is wear loose-fitting clothing to bed. Use cotton sheets. Keep your bedroom cool. Use cooling gels or cooling pads. Have a shower before you go to bed. Reduce or avoid spicy foods. Reduce or avoid nicotine, caffeine and alcohol. Manage your stress. Journal before you go to bed. Write out what's going on in your head. If you're making to-do lists in your head, how many times you've actually done those lists? I would say very small. So write out the list before you go to bed. Empty that noggin because if it's rattling around like a widget in a Guinness can, it's not going to benefit you. So it's an easy solution. Write up the stuff. Ed Sheeran compares to what journaling is. Think of it when you're trying to empty a tap or a radiator. The dirty water comes out first and the clean water comes out. That's what journaling is like. It may not be great at the beginning. There's no perfect time to do it. There's no perfect way to do it, but it will happen and you'll find your own rhythm and find your own routine as well. You may also need to go for HRT. So if lifestyle treatments aren't effective, your doctor may suggest to go on HRT. And I'm going to talk about this in a lot of detail in a second uh, to help manage, manage your menopause systems. So with HRT, go to your doctor, particularly if there is a link with with the cancer in your family and you've had cancer or breast cancer or whatever it may be. So estrogen replacement therapy is most commonly administered through a pill, patch or vaginal cream. In some cases, estrogen is combined with progesterone. So HRT was, I think at one stage, routinely prescribed for hot flashes and other menopause symptoms. However, research now suggests that HRT can raise your may raise risks with blood clot stroke heart disease breast cancer but more research needs to be done on it the research now is shifting towards various different things about hrt there was like if you look at a lot of the information regarding it it's like the main component of hrt is estrogen which treats the actual symptoms themselves 
especially the hot flushes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, and, and kind of helps to prevent osteoporosis. For women who have not had a hysterectomy, um, HRT treatment uh, will also may also include progesterone to prevent, th- prevent thickening of the lining of the actual womb itself, known as endometrial hyperplasia, which can lead to endometrial cancer itself. So about 10 years ago, um, there were studies, large studies, suggested there was an increase in risk of breast cancer and cardiovascular disease, and there was a marked reduction in the number of women prescribed HRT. If you haven't read the news right at the minute, there's a massive shortage of HRT in the world right now, and a lot of women are in a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort right now. We need to sort that shit out immediately. Many of these studies included women between age 50 and 70, and the results do not reflect the use of HRT in women under the age of 50 years of age. So the studies aren't accurate. The studies are done on those who are potentially at menopause stage rather than those who are at perimenopause stage. So they can't really relate that risk. But there can be a risk in the general population for those who take combined HRT, estrogen and progesterone for more than five years are advised that their risk of breast cancer is a one and a half to two and a half times greater. But when they discontinue the treatment, their juice will slowly reduce. The good news is that for women who have had a hysterectomy and therefore only require estrogen replacement, there is a no increased risk of breast cancer. So for this reason, women who have a BRCA mutation and have no plans to have bilateral risk uh, reducing mastectomies, should consider having a hysterectomy at the time of the BSO, of their BSO. So your doctor will go through all this stuff with you. So HRT after breast cancer. So for women with a past history of breast cancer, HRT may not be suitable. So HRT cannot be taken by women taking treatments such as Tamoxifen, um, or for or there's another one called anastrozole uh, for an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer so if you are experiencing severe menopausal symptoms that do not respond to non-hormonal management it is worthwhile discussing your risk benefit balance with doctors at the brca or hrt clinic so for women who have had a triple negative breast cancer hrt can be considered but it may be recommended to delay starting treatment for at least two years after diagnosis and after the woman has had potentially bilateral mastectomies as well. So vaginal estrogen is suitable for all women with the history of breast cancer, even during the actual treatment itself. So in order to actually get like started with HRT, speak to your GP if you're interested in starting with it, discuss your options. You can, for some, you can normally start your HRT as, as soon as you start experiencing menopausal symptoms or perimenopausal symptoms. A GP can explain the different types of HRT available and help you choose which one suitable for you. You'll usually start with the lower dose and what you'll find and what I've seen with clients is that will normally kind of increase at later stages as potentially symptoms or whatever may be getting a little bit worse. And it may take a few weeks to feel the effects. So don't expect it to be like a magic button straight away, but it, I've seen massive, like it, like I've heard it from clients, the feedback is I feel like myself again for those who do take it. And generally, a, a GP will recommend trying treatment for about three months to see if it helps. If it doesn't take or it doesn't, they may suggest changing your dose or, or taking or changing the type of HRT. So remember, if you have had breast cancer, 
talk to your doctor and see what like it may not be suitable for those with breast cancer blue clots blood pressure liver disease or pregnant or whatever it may be so there are alternatives um to these so talk to your doctor about these so we need to understand what actual hormones are actually in hrt and hrt replaces the hormones that a woman's body no longer produces because of the menopause so the two main hormones used in hrt are estrogen and these typically include estradiol estradone and estradiol all right so then we've got progestin so this is either a synthetic version of the hormone progesterone or a version called micronized progesterone and this is chemically identical to the human hormone itself so it's sometimes called body identical or natural so hrt either involves either taking both of these hormones combined hrt or just taking estrogen only hrt so estrogen only hrt is usually only recommended if you had had your womb removed during a hysterectomy so what are the ways to actually take it so it comes in several forms so talk to your gp about the pros and cons of each option so you need to go in with the list of questions saying what am i what's going on write out what your symptoms are how long have they been going on for i highly recommend all my clients to do this write down your symptoms how long they were going on for uh say what's changed in your life life is stressful sleep is crap whatever it may be and then say your family history what's going on all that kind of stuff so the main versions of it are tablets so tablets are one of the most common forms of hrt and they're usually taken once a day so both estrogen only and combined hrt are available as tablets so for some women this may be the simplest way of having treatment however it's important to be aware that some of the risk of hrt may not be suitable for for that type then we've got skin patches uh also known as which are also a very very common way of taking hrt as well as they say stick them to your skin and replace them every few days so it's kind of like kind of looks like a nicotine patch so then you've got estrogen only and combined hrt patches are available as well then you've got skin patches which may be a better option than tablets if you find it convenient to take an actual tablet every day and then you've got using patches can also help avoid some side effects of hrt such as indigestion and unlike tablets they do not increase your risk of blood clots talk to your doctor then you've got estrogen gel which is an increasingly popular form of hrt it's rubbed onto your skin once a day and like skin patches gel can be a convenient way of taking hrt and does not increase your risk of blood clots but if you still have your womb you'll need to take some sort of progestogen uh, separately too to reduce your risk of womb cancer but your doctor will go through that all with you then you've got implants so hrt can also come as small pellet like implants that are inserted into under your skin um usually in the tummy area so after your skin has been numbed with a local anesthetic the implant releases the estrogen gradually and that lasts for about several months before needing to be replaced it's like the implant when you if that was your contraception so this may be a convenient option if you do not want to worry about taking your treatment every day or every few days but if you still have your womb you'll need to take progesterone separately too so if you're taking a different form of estrogen and need to take a progesterone alongside it another implant option is the ius so an in uterine system so an in uterine system or an ius releases a progesterone hormone into the womb and it can stay in place for about three to five years and also acts as a contraceptive so implants of hrt are not widely available and not kind of really used that much but your doctor will be able to walk you, talk you through those then you've got vaginal estrogen and estrogen is also available as a cream 
um, or a ring that is placed inside your vagina. And this can help relieve vaginal dryness, but also, but it will not help with other symptoms such as hot flashes um, or hot flushes. It, it, it does not carry the kind of unusual risks of HRT and does not increase your risk of breast cancer. So you can use it without taking progestin, even if you still have your womb, but your doctor will be able to talk to you through that um, with the various options. Then you've got the likes of testosterone. Um, and this is available as a gel that you rub onto your skin. Uh, it is not currently licensed for use in women, uh, but it can be prescribed after the menopause by a specialist doctor or if they think that it will kind of help to restore your sex drive. So it's usually only recommended for women whose low sex drives or libido does not improve after using HRT and is normally used alongside another used alongside another type of HRT. Um, so ask a, ask a GP for more information on those. As I said, they're not widely available. Um, so the HR treatment routines can kind of vary as well. So there's two main types of routines. They're cyclical or sequential, um, and then oh, and then it's continuous combined HRT as well. So what cyclical HRT actually, or sequential HRT, is often re- recommended for women taking combined HRT who have menopausal symptoms but still have their periods. So there are two types of cyclical HRT. There's monthly HRT, and this is where you take estrogen every day and take progesterone alongside it for the last 14 days of your cycle. Or there's three monthly HRT and you take estrogen every day and take progesterone alongside it for around 14 days every three months. But monthly HRT is usually recommended for women who have regular periods and three monthly HRT is usually recommended for women having regular periods. So you should be able to track your cycle and see what's regular for you and what's not regular for you. So it's useful to maintain regular periods so you know when your period actually stops. Um, Then we've got continuous combined HRT and this is usually recommended for women who are postmenopausal. So a woman who is usually said to be postmenopausal, uh, she has not had a cycle for 12 months. We know that already. So combined HRT involves taking estrogen and progesterone every day without a break. And estrogen only HRT is usually taken every day without a break as well. Um, when should you take it? Or when should you stop taking it, should I say? Um, talk to your doctor. There's no limit on how long you can take HRT, but you're linked into your GP and how long they recommend it. Like most women kind of stop taking it once their menopausal symptoms pass, um, which is usually after a few years. Biggest thing I would say is talk to your doctor on this. Like if your symptoms are persisting, talk to your doctor. Um, and if they consist and they can persist, should I say, after several months after you stop actually taking HRT, or you have severe symptoms, you may need to start it again, but your doctor will run through this with you. Um, So as I said, with the risk of cancer, the studies were done on women in their 50s to 70s, not with the women going through perimenopause and stuff like that. So it's important to be mindful of that as well. So one of the major things that can happen during perimenopause and menopause is the mind and the impact of it on mental health, anxiety, depression, all that kind of stuff. So if you are struggling with those things, the next part is gonna be hugely, hugely beneficial for you. Um, So I really hope this helps. I'm gonna stay in my lane on it and make sure that if you are struggling, please go and talk to someone. 
if you feel I'm not in a bad enough way to talk to someone, don't wait until you're in a bad enough way, in inverted commas, to go and talk to someone. No problem is big enough or small enough to not go and warrant to talk to someone. I firmly believe every single person should try therapy at some point. It saved my life. So I would highly recommend someone to try and do it. So when it comes to actually managing the mind during menopause, so this is kind of the last of the section because I know this is going on. This is not only 90 minutes. And I just had to take another, I had to take a coffee there to try and get myself uh, to kind of get through the next little bit to kind of make sure that I have enough energy to get through it and stuff like that alongside water and stuff. Um, so many women have additional symptoms during perimenopause and menopause and one of those is the impact and the role that it can play on the actual mood itself this time in a woman's life is like the second puberty which we already spoke about with from lara bryden and it can change and have an impact on self-esteem how we see ourselves how the belief system the, the the negative thoughts can increase sleep all that kind of stuff can have an impact so during perimenopause when people are not sleeping or the hot flashes are happening, the mood can be unpredictable. Anger, panic, anxiety, all these things can kind of creep on. And this can cause a lot of unrest, a lot of challenges in relationships, and it can contribute to like an unstable mood. And it's not pleasant to be, and not pleasant to be around. So remember that your body is changing. And you aren't to blame for those emotions. There is a very real chemical reaction at play in your body. So it's hard to say how common or rare the actual anger and venting thing is. But it can play a common, a big role on the mood. It doesn't mean you've completely lost control. But it's important to say, right, let's what, what can we do to bring back in some element of control for you? So what is the actual impact of estrogen, serotonin and the mood, all right? So estrogen is the hormone that manages most of women's reproductive organs, right, and functions. So as you approach menopause, your ovaries slow the, the production of, of estrogen. So then estrogen also controls how much serotonin is being reduced in your brain. So serotonin is a chemical that helps to regulate your moods. So if you're producing less estrogen, as a byproduct, you're also producing less serotonin. And this can have an impact and a direct impact on how optimistic or how or unoptimistic uh, and how stable you are and how you feel. So balancing those hormones is a key to regaining mood control. So HRT can be an option. Other things that we can do as a byproduct are eating a balanced diet. Doesn't matter what age you are, eating a balanced diet, making sure that you're adding foods rich in vitamin D, calcium, iron. They will not all, all like they will help you to feel better, but also make you feel your bones strong as your estrogen production slows down. So menopause and the link with weight gain. We know what it's from. It's not your metabolism slowing down. It's due to other factors happening. So maybe listen to that part again. And in turn, this can have an effect, have an effect on your self-image and your moods. So stick to a high fiber diet to protect your colon health and to, to kind of keep your digestion regular. So if you've got slower gut health, get enough fiber, get enough water, that side of stuff. Be active. Walking can help your gut health as well. There's a direct link between your gut axis and your and your mind axis. Gut health axis, our gut mind axis it's called. 
So if your gut is happy, your mind will be more than likely to be in a more beneficial space. Take the cut, like you look after your phone, you look after your kids, you look after everyone else. Take responsibility and take control of your body. You may not want to, you may not feel like just start small, as I said earlier. Celebrate being able to move. Like ongoing research also suggests that plant estrogens found in soy may help to reduce the symptoms. So consider taking soy milk, adame, tofu, uh, those sort of things. Uh, there can't there there's a there is a link or there is some research saying that those who have cancer, soy may not be great for that. But so talk to your doctor on that. But research, as I said throughout the whole thing, can be left field or right field, and it's hard to find that balance. If you're drinking loads and loads of caffeine, you're going to increase your anxiety. If you're not sleeping, you're going to have a lower mood. So my advice is cut caffeine to before to 2 p.m. Don't go cold turkey. Decaf also has caffeine in it. People don't realize that. So go for tea, go for the herbal stuff, cooler fluids, sleep with a fan on. Exercise regularly. Go for lifting weights go for walks walk with your dogs go for hikes just do something potentially channel that anger or that mood into actually doing something creative so according to researchers in one clinical trial uh, perceived control over your symptoms may be an indicator of symptom severity so that could be why some women find it helpful to channel their strong emotions into a productive outlet so activities like painting writing gardening and even some home decorating can give you the space to process your emotions in a positive way so support groups or even chats with friends can also be really really helpful and sharing your story can help you realize that you're not alone and that's the biggest thing that i've learned from helping women at this stage of their life is trying to create that environment where they feel comfortable enough in order to talk about these things because your struggles are not your own someone else in the world has got through this before someone else's struggles and sharing that story with someone was like oh i thought i was the only one that's the biggest sentence i hear when they start talking about it with their mates is some women will have no impact some women will have you impacted quite drastically and um and it's important to be there for support when you're able to accept that you're going into this new phase and embracing the kind of like the change as a positive one the mood can also be hugely beneficial so mindfulness meditation stress management are you working stupid hours at work like you only have your health you're not your job yes you need a pay slip and you need paychecks to put a roof over your head 100% and if there's stress going on in your life for whatever reason do you feel supported what do you need bring awareness how do you actually feel Focus on what your actual senses are feeling right now. Like a lot of studies emerging right now to probe the effect of mindfulness on depression and anxiety. We know that criticizing ourselves isn't going to be beneficial to ourselves. But self-compassion, those who have more success with weight loss journeys are the ones who are sounder to themselves, not the ones that are dickheads to themselves. That's me being 100% honest. And the research would show that. Several, several studies have shown that. There's an amazing book by Krista Neff, uh, called self-compassion which i highly recommend everyone to work with and to do you can use calm you can use mindfulness apps you can use breathing techniques go to therapy uh cbt can help doing some walking cold showers light exposure first thing in the morning can help to improve your mood 
um, using fact for opinion and using challenging things to like with some of the clients that we have we kind of use a thing called uh, there's ACT therapy or there's CBT therapy and one of the things that we kind of t- I talk about with a lot of clients fact for opinion is like actually write it down left hand side of a column write down fact right hand side column opinion write down out what you're actually thinking and, and all that kind of stuff and figure out which column it fits in and I'd be surprised if most of it doesn't go into opinion column then it's looking at where did you get that opinion from because if an opinion isn't a fact it's someone else's opinion it doesn't mean they're right so try journaling try writing it out it's like it's like what Ed Sheeran says when he's writing a song the dirty water comes out first and then it becomes clear go to therapy is what I would recommend if you're if you're struggling go to your doctor Um, some women can have massive episodes of depression anxiety around this so please go talk to your doctor um there's ssris that can help as well there's cbt and that can help as well so just potentially going on medications loads of different things so please like hrt can also help so there's lots of different options go to your doctor and talk about those the brain fog situation so many women will feel a report feeling forgetful or having a general brain fog and this can make it hard to concentrate and memory issues can be play a role of part of menopause so what does the actual research say so in one study researchers say that some 60 percent of middle-aged women report difficulty concentrating and other issues with cognition all right these issues spike in women going through perimenopause the women in the study notice subtle changes in memory but the researchers also believe that a negative effect may have had those feelings more pronounced. So the researchers explain that women going through menopause may generally feel a bit more in negative mood and that mood may be related to memory issues because they're getting frustrated. Not only that, but the actual brain and fog may also be connected with sleep issues and vascular symptoms associated with menopause like hot flashes. Another study also focused on the idea that women in early stages of menopause may experience some more noticeable issues with cognition, specifically women in the first year of their, their last menstrual period scored the lowest on tests evaluating verbal learning memory motor function attention and working memory tests so the memory for the women improved over time which is the opposite of what the actual researchers researchers had actually kind of initially said so what's actually causing this foggy thinking so scientists believe it's something to do with the hormone changes all right so it's estrogen progesterone fsh and your lh or your luteinizing hormone are all responsible for different processes in the body, including cognition. So perimenopause lasts on average for the kind of like the four to 11 years, depends, during which time your hormone levels may fluctuate wildly and cause a range of symptoms as the body and the mind actually adjust itself. So it's important to say seek help. Memory issues during menopause can be completely normal. You may forget where you place your phone or try to remembering someone's name or your kid's name or whatever it may be. But if your cognitive issues are starting to negatively impact on work life, family life, love life, it may be seen kind of important to go and talk to your doctor to see if there's elements of dementia or Alzheimer's. And if that's in the family, potentially go and talk to your doctor anyway. Treatment, uh, you can, once your doctor has ruled out other issues like dementia or Alzheimer's, you may explore menopausal uh, hormone therapy, uh, MHT or HRT, um and this could either take involve taking a low dose estrogen or a combination of estrogen and progesterone 
and these can help to reduce uh, memory loss and the long-term use of estrogen may increase your risk um so talk to your doctor on that in relation to those particularly if you've got breast cancer so what can we do to kind of reduce or prevent these side of things it's coming back to a balanced diet a diet that's kind of low in low density lipoprotein like ldl cholesterol uh, and fat may be ideal uh try a look at whole foods healthy fats mediterranean diet which is rich in omega-3s uh, fatty acids and uh, unsaturated fats the only fats that i would kind of be mindful of are trans fats which are man's-made fats which are like margarine so they're the only ones i'd really kind of look out for um finding that balance um a diet that includes some of these foods can be beneficial fresh food fresh fruits veggies whole grains fish beans nuts olive oil get some sleep get some sleep um 61 percent of women um of kind of like postmenopausal women kind of in some studies have reported insomnia issues like issues with insomnia so what can you do reduce caffeine reduce alcohol wear don't wear heavy clothing if you're going to sleep work on stress management work on sleep don't have massive meals before you go to bed exercise your body do something do try doing crosswords or puzzles to exercise your actual mind meet up with people when we get it's a natural response to go withdrawal when we don't feel like ourselves when we are more anxious um we think other people are thinking about us and talking about us um but it's important for you to still have that element of communication i think the biggest thing that people have realized over the last kind of couple of years and that's why people are going book wild now with holidays and all that kind of stuff is is that we miss human contact we miss these kind of spontaneity things if your brain fog is getting worse talk to your doctor so then we talk about migraines and headaches so these can affect women in different way so if your headaches are stress related or hormonal related you may need to you need to figure out which one they are uh or the glasses related or whatever it may be or you're not getting enough water or whatever it may be so if it's hormonal related it's generally because your hormones hormones are fluctuating um and you need to look at and address like what's going on so women who have get headaches hormonal headaches um or migraines before perimenopause so premenopause they generally find that they're significantly worse during menopause and the migraines are a subtype of headache they're typically debilitating in nature. They're characterized by a throbbing pain on the side of the head as well as kind of sensitivity to lighter sound. And the main reason for the kind of like migraine or hormonal headache is due to estrogen withdrawal. All right. So this is why headaches can be worse around menstruation. That estrogen is withdrawing too quickly. And the same hormone or their lack of that gives some women relief from migraines after menopause can cause more headaches in the months leading up. That's because the levels of estrogen and progesterone decline during uh, perimenopause. Like the decline isn't always consistent. Uh, so women who experience headaches related to their monthly menstrual cycle may have more headaches during perimenopause. It's also common to experience more severe headaches during this time. So what can be done? So HRT, um, but 
it could help your migraines or it could make it worse. So it may not be the one size fits all approach. Tell your doctor if it's worsening when you go on to HRT, if you are on HRT and you may want to try an actual estrogen patch instead or skin patch instead. They'll, estrogen patches kind of like maybe less likely uh, than other forms of, to, to trigger the, the headaches. Um, they may suggest progesterone alone could be very beneficial. Uh, there's riboflavin, vitamin B12, which could help as well. Um, but talking to your doctor will help you there. So what can you do? Look at your diet. Is there anything you can do over that time on that side of things? Reducing alcohol, potentially reducing caffeine. Um, look at the, the level of, yeah, just look at that side of things. Look at your life right now. Are you massively stressed as well? What could help with supplementation is magnesium. A dose of about 100 milligrams to 300 milligrams would be the recommendation, but starting a lower dose and, and, and kind of increase if needed. But if you're on medications, Please check with your doctor before taking it. Vitamin B12, uh, riboflavin is the one I mentioned already. And this has been a clinical trial for migraine prevention and found to reduce their frequency and was found to reduce their frequency by 50%. The dosage in the trials was 200 milligrams twice per day. So vitamin D and coenzyme Q10 may also be beneficial. Taking ibuprofen short term could also help. Uh, but you should check with your doctor before any doing any of this. That's the big thing. Check with your doctor before you do any of this. Um, exercise can help as well. Uh, walking, meditation, acupuncture could also help. Um, CBT. Um, and then we look at kind of like, kind of cool. we're coming to the end now in relation to what we're going to talk about. Um, it's a long episode. Um, so you, I'd, I'd be surprised if, you, if, you've, if you've listened to me for nearly two hours nonstop. Fair credit to you. And if you've broken it up, I hope you've got notes and please do send questions over. If you've got questions as you kind of go along, please do let me know and I'll be happy to answer them. Um, I really hope this episode has helped because the amount of DMs I got over this week has just been bananas. Um, Yeah, absolutely bananas. So we look at bone health now. So as women enter menopause, their estrogen and progesterone levels kind of begin to fall. And estrogen as we know we've spoken about many times is acts as your natural protector and defender of bone strength so the lack of estrogen contributes to the development of osteoporosis or osteopenia and decreased estrogen levels aren't the only cause for osteoporosis other factors may be responsible for weakened bones and when these combine with decreased estrogen levels during menopause osteoporosis may begin to develop faster if it's already occurring in your bones so what actually is osteoporosis so osteoporosis is a disease that causes bone tissue to thin and become less dense. This produces weakened bones that are more susceptible to fracture. And then we've got osteopenia can be considered the first step forward to osteoporosis. So technically it's just a way of saying that your bone density is lower than normal, but not yet causing real problems. So osteoporosis shows very few symptoms and can progress to advanced stages without presenting any real problems. So it's often not discovered until your weakened bones fracture or break. So once you have a fracture as a result of osteoporosis, you'll be more susceptible to another. These breaks can be debilitating. I've seen it firsthand. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. Listen to the episode I had with Natalie Lennon. Natalie was so amazing about and honest about her journey. Genuinely one of the nicest people I've ever spoken to. Um, and most often your weakened bones aren't discovered until a, a kind of a fall results in a broken hip or a back so how does it actually develop the exact cause is unknown all right 
So, however, we do know that disease, disease develop, develops and what it does to the actual bones. So, if we think of your bones like a as living, growing, and ever changing, right? So they're ever evolving. All right. So imagine the outer part of your bone as a case. Inside the case is a more delicate bone with little holes in it, similar to an actual sponge. So if you fall when your bones are in this state, they may not be strong enough to sustain the fall and they'll fracture. If osteoporosis is severe, fractures can occur even without a fall or other trauma. So some of the risk factors for osteoporosis, age, smoking, body composition, existing bone density, family history, gender, race, and ethnicity. All right, so how do you actually get a diagnosis? As it usually develops with without symptoms, you may not know about your if your bones are becoming weaker. So a primary care physician or a GP can screen you for this. And the best way to do it is through a DEXA scan. All right. So the testing is normally always is kind of recommended for women over age 65. Women under age 65 have evidence of lower bone mass. Men over age 70 and men over age 50 with certain risk factors for bone health and bone loss. So, and then a BMD measurement and your FRAX or your, I think it's called like a fracture risk assessment tool score are usually used to get, a, to get an idea of your overall bone health and guide treatment. So some of the treatment options after talking to your doctor to figure it out can be take calcium and vitamin D. So we've spoken about the calcium and vitamin D, they bind together. So generally, if you're going to get calcium or you, uh, you can buy it as, like if I go onto my protein and you type in calcium, you'll generally get the supplement like magnesium, calcium, and vitamin D all in the same thing, or you'll get calcium and vitamin D in the same tub. So generally, they come together. So calcium can actually build strong bones and keep them strong as you age. So the National Institute of Health (NIH) uh, recommends that people's ages 19 to 50 get 1,000 milligrams of calcium each day. So women over 50 and all adults over 70 should get at least 1200 milligrams of calcium each day. If you can't get adequate calcium through food sources like dairy, kale, broccoli, then talk to your doctor or to work with a nutritionist or a dietitian to talk about supplementation. So both calcium carbonate and calcium citrate deliver good forms of calcium to your body. So that's calcium carbonate and calcium citrate. So vitamin D is important for healthy bones as your body can't properly absorb calcium without it glue ant and deck together fatty fatty fishes like salmon or mackerel um can are good sources uh, of vitamin d from food along with foods like milk and cereals which is also added vitamin d is known, is known as the sunshine vitamin so sun exposure can help um but the time it takes the sun to produce vitamin d varies depending on the time of the day the environment where you live and the natural pigment of your skin so if you're living in a climate similar to Ireland and the UK, then all of us should probably be supplementing with vitamin D. Genuinely between the months of October and March, I generally take it all year round. For those people concerned with skin cancer or for those who wish to get their vitamin D in another way, supplements are available too. So according to NIH, again, which I alluded to earlier, people's ages, I think it's 19 to 70, should get at least 600 IUs of vitamin every day. So IUs is the actual measurement. It's like milligrams or inches or centimeters. It's the measurement of, of um, vitamin D. So people over 70 should increase their daily vitamin D to 800 IU. Ask your doctor about prescription meds, injectable bone building agents, um, 
there's a group of drugs called biophosphonates, uh, I think they're called, and that helps pre- prevent bone loss. And over these time, these medicines can have shown to slow down bone loss, increase bone density, and reduce the risk of actual bone fractures. And then there was a 2017 study showed biophosphonates can reduce the rate of fractures due to osteoporosis by up to 60%, six zero. Um, so there are other jobs or other drugs out there, should I say, uh, called Evanity. Uh, Evanity. So it's E-V-E-N-I-T-Y. Um, I'm not pronouncing that correctly. So so please forgive me. Um, then there's also other selective estrogen modulators or uh, SERMs, S-E-R-M-S, are a group of drugs that have estrogen-like properties and sometimes they can be used for the prevention and treatment of osteoporosis. And that has sh- and some study in 2016, I think it was, um, show that it can reduce the fraction of spine by about 42%. So talk to your doctor about the treatments, all that kind of stuff, um, what you need to do, get a DEXA scan um, and figure out what's going from there. Resistance training can help, HRT, uh, which we've spoken about before, um, and that side of things. And I think one of the things that's not talked about an awful lot is sex life and menopause um so as you go through perimenopause and menopause you may become a little bit more self-conscious a little bit more withdrawn also vaginal dryness may not be a help there as well you may notice that your libido sex drive also goes down and this can make during menopause your testosterone and estrogen levels both decrease which can make it more difficult for you to get aroused so this can lead to a lower estrogen levels, which can lead to vaginal dryness and lower levels of estrogen lead to a drop in supply a blood supply to the vagina, which can then negatively impact vaginal lubrication, which then can also lead to thinning of the vaginal wall known as vaginal atrophy and vaginal dryness uh, and atrophy often lead to discomfort during sex. All right. So with so there's other physical changes as well um, and during menopause it can also affect your libido for example many women can gain weight um, and this can cause self-esteem issues discomfort they don't feel comfortable in themselves they don't want to have sex and then hot flashes and night sweats are also common symptoms so if you're not sleeping you might not have the energy to do so you're too tired for sex and your partner um, like may have a high sex drive and you may have a lower sex drive so that can be can have a impact on the relationship uh, it's important to have that that connection um if you're noticing these changes talk to your doctor and some of the things that can help are lubricant exercise communication hrt kegel exercise therapy it can be difficult like like sex is awkward enough um, not knowing and then if your body's not working for you it, it when it works for you it's liberating um, what I've seen with clients who come out of menopause so go into that post-menopause phase which we've spoken about they get a new confidence they get a new desire they get this new experience they want to experience new things so as it, like teenage years were awkward perimenopause can be awkward so it's challenging physically emotionally and there are ways around it. Talk to your doctor if you're struggling. Look at the therapy, nutritious diet, 
managing your sleep and stress, getting some exercise, realize that it's not your metabolism. Work with someone to help. What I've seen is life starts after menopause for a lot of women, that those insecurities, those highs and lows of their actual hormones bring themselves, resent themselves back to their normal selves. There are adjustments to be made. Not all aspects are negative. They may not feel like it. You spend a third of your life after this stage if you're a woman. So it really is important to to remember this could be a start of something beautiful for you rather than something to actually mourn. So if you're struggling, please go and talk to your doctor. HRT, talk talk to your doctor. Talk to your doctor, talk to your doctor, talk to your doctor. This advice here is not to substitute medical advice it's literally giving the information so you have it it's a two-hour episode it's the longest episode probably by about 40 minutes if you guys have enjoyed this episode please for the love of ice cream will you please share it amongst your friends please share it amongst those people who are friends and family who are going through the same things Please share it if you're a PT. Please share it if you're a coach. Please share it if you're a nutritionist. Just please just bloody share the episode. These amazing people in the industry like Catherine O'Keefe, Lara Bryden, who are amazing at what they do and they're spreading that word. Davina McCall over in the UK is campaigning. There's a lot of work being done on James Smith had an amazing episode on HRT recently and I would highly recommend everyone to listen to that. Please go and if you are struggling, reach out. If you want help with what you've got, manage your set of symptoms of perimenopause. That's exactly what it is. It's a set of symptoms. Managing that will give you freedom. You can lose weight through perimenopause and menopause, but if you're not sleeping and you're not and you're stressed all the time, you need to address them and work with someone on those through CBT, a counselor, or whatever it may be. You can do it. So if you've enjoyed the episode, please share. If you want to work with me on a one-to-one basis through online coaching, I do have spaces available for this. I've had clients that have smashed it with this. It can be possible. It's shown how to be done. So please reach out. DM me at Shane Walshfield Fitness on Instagram. Head over to www.shanewalshfitness.com um, and apply for coaching there as well. Once again, share this episode. So thank you so much for listening and welcome to my very long TED Talk.